Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with evolutionary anthropologist William Buckner on secret societies, initiation rituals, tribalism, the Hobbesian Rousseauian split in the Western mind, technological complexity and the incentives surrounding human violence, belief systems, and a number of other topics. But first, briefly, some announcements on the show. This will be the last interview episode before the turning of the new year and perhaps the conclusion of the first season. I am taking a hiatus on interviews because of a career transition that I'm currently going through and also using this as an opportunity to revamp many aspects of the show for next season. I want to thank all of the guests and listeners for joining me on this journey. I hope you've learned much from these conversations. I've shared some magical moments with the guests on the show and I couldn't have done it all without you. I will be back next year greater than ever and with a new lineup of excellent guests. In the meantime, there may be a few direct messages between now and then. As always, I appreciate the support as we dive deeper together into new territory. With that out of the way, I present my conversation with Will Buckner. start <laughs> started now hello and welcome to agora politics this is your host alex mershak today i'm speaking with william buckner william buckner is a research assistant at the human systems and behavior lab based in the department of anthropology at pennsylvania state university he also uh, is quite a prolific blogger and writer. he writes and blogs on violence warfare rituals deception uh, small-scale societies and a number of other topics uh, william welcome to the show thanks for having me Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Um, so as we talked about a little bit before this all started, uh, I actually primarily know you from from Twitter. Uh, you're going by the handle uh, Evolving Moloch. And so that's how I, I kind of recognize you. And uh, in fact, I wasn't even sure if I was going to be able to find out your last name until I looked on your blog and checked it out. But um, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to have you on. And today I really wanted to dig into some aspects of what I think is human nature. Um, and we can even dig into that question a little bit if you'd like. But first of all, do you just want to introduce uh, the audience to a little bit about your work and what your primary research interests are? Uh, yeah, sure. I work, as you said, for the Human Systems and Behavior Lab. Um, and a lot of that work is focused on violence and warfare in small-scale societies. So the um, principal investigator of that lab, uh, Luke Glowacki, um, does field work among East African pastoralists, the Nangatum, um, focused specifically on warfare and the mechanisms that drive warfare. Um, and a lot of the work I'm interested in is on violence, um, the socio-ecological contexts that incentivize violence, the cultural norms that can contribute to it, um, ultimate evolutionary mechanisms. Um, so that's a key interest and also deception particularly in regard to um, secret societies in particularly small-scale societies. So there's a long history in anthropology focusing on um, male cults in secret societies. Uh, but most of that was done, you know, like 100 years ago in the early um, colonial encounters and things like that. And they haven't been given as much attention over the last few decades. Um, so that's something I'm interested in. Why do these cults 
occur across diverse geographic regions? Um, what are the similarities they have? Why it's particularly um, men who have the more coercive and violent secret societies? I mean, you have female secret societies as well. Um, mm. That can be very important, but there's some different mechanisms at work, I think, between the male secret societies and female secret societies and mixed sex um, secret societies. So deception and, and violence and the, the context where they occur and why they occur are probably my main um, focus, I'd say. Okay. So just going, just riffing off of that real quick, deception is often a tactic employed in violence, um, right, in order to conceal information. Uh, or to have a, a first strike advantage or something along those lines. Um, are secret societies, in your estimation, uh, more political entities, or are they religious? Do they serve multiple roles? Um, we tend to think of secret societies these days, you know, people talk about, you know, the Freemasons or the Skull and Bone Society, and so you very quickly devolve into conspiracy land, but obviously secret societies exist, and you know, just given the the prevalence of them in many cultures and across lots of time periods, they have to serve some purpose. Uh, what do you think that is? Uh, so I would say it depends entirely on the, the secret society. And, you know, like there, so the Hadza hunter-gatherers of East Africa, um, mm -hmm. they have a sort of male cult oriented around these epim feasts, which are basically the sort of most desirable parts of various big game animals are reserved for the men um, and the initiated men specifically. Okay, so and, only like warriors or people that have earned a spot, right? Yeah, so they don't, so actually they have to earn a spot, but it's not related to war at all. The Hods okay. are really one of um, I would say one of a rare, a relatively rare example of a society without a clear history of war, or to the extent that they do have intergroup conflict, it was mostly with like pastoralists that were, you know, more powerful, that would more often kill the Hadza than in return. Um, so it, it's oriented on hunting specifically, like to be initiated, um, a, a young man has to demonstrate skill in hunting. So the so if they demonstrate particularly particular skill they get initiated earlier whereas for unskilled men they'll ultimately be initiated but it might be a decade or two later you know when they're in the 30s or something um but these at peem feasts so they they'll take a pot um like a clay pot or something and they'll go you know a hundred yards or so away from camp in some out of the way area um and consume the meat the initiated men um, and the story given to the broader society um, to the ex is that like these Epim spirits are consuming the meat. So it's an exclusive privilege of these, you know, older initiated males. Um, and so this, you know, there's also associated with this, they have a tradition with berries where the most desirable berries are consumed first by the men as well. The women actually gather these, they bring them to camp, um, then it's given to the men, and then one of the males will like speak in a in a in a voice, uh, like accusing the women of eating it. It's like this sort of uh, kind of a ceremony associated with it. And ultimately the women will eat the berries too, but it's like the men who get first choice. So with these sort of practices, there's some religious um aspect but it's also 
seemingly self-interested in terms of, of consuming desirable resources first or exclusively in the case of the feasts. Um, but it's not really a political entity. Um, and it's the religious aspect seems somewhat secondary, maybe. Um, whereas like in Australia, um, in a lot of Aboriginal Australian societies where there were sort of secret male cults or secret societies, um, it does seem more of a political organized um, entity with like long-term devotion to rituals and initiation stages. And the, the, you know, the boys will have their penis sub-incised. Um, there may be tooth avulsion. It, like it's a long-term years or decades process of initiation. Um, mm. And there seems to be a lot of meaning associated with like ritual objects and symbols um, and it, it depends on the society, some more than others, but they they can be more um, deeply religious and more political in terms of um, status and marriage arrangements and the privileges, like um, certain men being most important in the secret society hierarchy, and then the you know at other levels, these may be the men doing the initiations. So there's various positions associated with it. Um, so I think it really depends. Like in, and in New Guinea, um, you'll have more like secret societies associated with warfare and war alliances across different groups even, where there'll be sort of different, different um, cultural groupings sort of united around a secret cult or secret practices. So I think it depends a lot on the society. Um, you know, there's some similarities across these societies, but it can be more warfare oriented. It can be more religious, more hunting oriented. There's different types, I'd say, even if there's a, a lot of similarities. So what do you see then as the primary connection between secret societies and violence? Um, you said that not all of them are for the purposes of engaging in warfare um you've emphasized that there there is a tendency for them to be all male um and so the, maybe that has something to do with um i guess the superior male use of force um but and of course there's some violence also in the rituals which are more like personal sacrifices um what do you what do you see as vi the role of violence in terms of making meaning for these societies so I think it. this also depends on who it, it's directed towards. So violence towards initiates, you know, can be very important and it can be a way, there can be different justifications for it. So sometimes it is explicitly stated it's to make the boys tough, right? To prepare mm -hmm. them for warfare. Um, this, is a, this is the case in a lot of like New Guinea societies I've read and some Amazonian ones. Um, where it is like the boys need to be tough to be prepared for, for, for war. Um, other times against initiates, it can seem like a, um, almost like a fraternity kind of thing, like hazing, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, like the men may enjoy doing it, like kind of like, tor like, you know, straddling so, the line so, with what so we call there's torture. there's some, somewhat of the sado, sado, sadomasochistic elements have a chance to come out in this 
these rituals and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely depends on the society and the context and things like that, but there can be that for sure. That does happen. Um, other times the violence may be like, so when it's directed or threatened towards uninitiates, it's to display the power of, of the cult. Or it's like, so in a, in a lot of male cult societies, um, the men will wear like costumes that are like um and there may be some display and the spirits may like run up at uninitiates like to attack them or actually hit them with stuff um and it's a way of inducing fear you know um so there's different functions to it i will say like there are female secret societies and some of them can be quite important but the way they're expressed it does seem generally less violence oriented like pretty much always less violence oriented and they're actually the female secret societies ones are pretty interesting because in some cases they're like more secretive even like the male cults will be very a lot of times very ostentatious like with the spirit portrayals and stuff like that like that like the men may want the wider society to know their power and control and the control of this cult whereas like female and you know secret societies and when they have initiations they seem like like they'll be associated with like menstruation and stuff. So like where there's menstrual huts where the women are like segregated um, mm. during menstruation, there may be like rituals associated with that and important like religious um, beliefs associated with it. But they are different, you know, and they're, and they're also like harder to study when it's men going to the society, right? And they'll like a male ethnographer will be able in, in some cases or not always, We'll be able to get some insight into the male secret cult, you know, and like some there's a few cases of male anthropologists like being initiated, things like that. But if it's a male ethnographer, and most of them were male historically, most you know, mm-hmm. um, they can't find anything out about the menstrual taboos and and you know what's going on in the menstrual huts and stuff. They're not they're not allowed. Um, but that's part of why you don't you know you don't see the really the female violence or the female cults like imposing their will on society or waging war, um, things like that. So yeah, I think the the functions of violence depend on the domain and who it's directed towards. Um, Okay. So a few things I wanted to ask about um, just off of what you said. First off, you're using the word cult almost interchangeably with secret society here. And I wanted to just whether or not that is sort of in the, I guess, you're, you're, when, you're, when you say it's a cult, it's, it's not really a cult in the way that we think of cults, or, or is it? Uh, well, how, I, how do you think of a cult? I'm not sure. It's, sure, it's sure. tough to so, define. So I'll say, I'll say like cults are these sort of quasi-religious structures with uh, social organizations, usually with a singular leader, um, who's highly influential, and basically what they do is they, um, they through various rituals and rules and strictures, uh, control the lives of members of the cult and slowly isolate them in order to separate them from the broad social fabric um, and, you know, use them, I would say, largely for, um, uh, uh, what, is, what is the term I'm looking for? Manipulative or, you know, extractive purposes, right? Getting free labor, uh, you know, sexual favors, these these kinds of things. That's what we, 
that's what, at least what I tend to think about when I think about a cult. And I'm not sure if, um, I'm not sure if there is a huge difference there or if maybe you're just using it in a different way. Uh, I think that's fair. Um, I would say, I mean, the, the main distinction, distinction, because these seem to be, these seem to be well integrated into the societies. Whereas in our culture, we generally regard cults as very fringe and things to be extinguished. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, the two distinctions then between that and the sort of common tendency of the secret societies is they can be well integrated. They can also be somewhat fringe or you can have competing secret societies. Um, so in, in like a lot of Pacific Northwest um, hunter gatherer groups, you'd have different secret societies, some more prevalent and popular and more prestigious than others. Um, and sometimes these were mixed sex, but often still more male oriented. Um, so they could still be kind of fringe. I mean, I guess it, it depends. And the other distinction would be the singular leader aspect. So that would be rare in, from what I've read of, of small scale societies of, you know, the ones I'm talking about. Although I do think the other things you mentioned, like the manipulation aspects and, and, and securing favors from, you know, initiates and things like that, those dynamics are there often, you know, maybe not always. Um, and it, it, it's tough because I, you know, I'm thinking about these things in what they share and also what, where they're different. So it's hard to like, I'm not sure there's a singular way of, of framing them. You know, see, secret society is kind of imprecise too, in mm -hmm. some fashion. Um, yeah. So, so that was the other point I wanted to get into is the secretiveness, right? So you said, you said you're interested in deception. Um, obviously, a secret society is kind of structured around this key component of, uh, if not deception, at least concealment. Um, and what is the function of keeping a secret uh, would be my first question, because like, why can't other people know? Um, the second thing is, it, do you find that there's often uh, more than one layer of secretiveness? So not only is the content or the activities of the secret society secret from the people who are not part of it, but maybe even the society itself kept a secret. Um, yeah, we'll start with those. Yeah. So, um, the second, the second part of that question. So th there can be multiple reasons to have a secret, right? Obviously. Um, in a lot of contexts, there are particularly food benefits. And if, you want to take advantage of the labor of others and secure choice resources. Um, the justification that it's spirits consuming it or some mythical figure um, eating the food, it seems to have been a common equilibrium. Like that's a lot of the secret societies sort of fall on that practice where um, the men will impersonate spirits or claim they're in communion with the spirits. And the women may even do the cooking, you know, in some of these cases, and the food will be brought to like the men's, the large men's house, and the men have these secret feasts. Um, and that sort of goes actually to the second part of your question about layers of secrecy, because like in, there's the, the Tamborin um, men's secret society 
in New Guinea among the, the Arapash and other highland uh, New Guinea groups where you have initiation grades in the secret society and there's different revelations of information about what's going on and the some of the like the the feasts are only for the top met in the cult in the you know society um and the there will be different so like the broader um the broader story to the society, to the totally uninitiated, is that this entity, Enwall, is consuming the meat. This, this pork, these pork feasts, which is are cooked by the women, and it's like in the men's house, Enwall is consuming the feasts. But then, as you go up in grades, you learn that like you start learning like Enwall is not there physically, which is the story told but he's there metaphorically or, you know, like in some other greater cosmic sense. And then the highly initiated men have to consume the feast themselves for, to, for, for it to be given to Enwal, like they're, you know, possessed by him. Mm -hmm. And then as you get higher, there seems to be on some level more awareness about it kind of being a justification. Like some men have a more cynical view of it, you know, like there may be earlier sort of some credulity in a belief in, in Engwall consuming the meat, even if it's through the men. And then as you get higher, it's more like some men will express like, this is just what men do to, to consume the meat. Like it's not really Engwall there. Um, so the initiation grade thing, I think is, is the main area where you have those layers probably. Um, but yeah, there's a lot, I mean like secrecy, the, you know, on an individual level and on a group level, there can be various reasons for it. Um, so often, what is, what is usually the punishment for disclosing information about it? So the threat is often you'll be killed. Right. Um, that's the threat. the The question is then how often is how often or when is that enacted? Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes the threat is like supernatural. You know, it's like you'll be killed by the spirits. It's it's not necessarily that they'll do the killing themselves. You know, people will do the killing themselves, but the spirit will do it if you do that. Um, it also depends on who reveals it or is exposed to it. So, like, there's cases. It's it's common to threaten women and girls with with rape in in quite a few of these societies if they come across the secrets, if they become aware of the men's like flutes in the, in the men's storehouse. Um, and there are cases of, of anthropologists who have interviewed women who have been raped um, as part of this and who clearly believe it's a credible, you know, others who clearly believe it's a credible threat. Um, there's an anthropologist or not an anthropologist. He was um, the son of a missionary, Lucas Bridges, who, um, lived in Tierra del Fuego, uh, South America. And he was actually the only European to be initiated into these Ona, in the Ona hunter-gatherers uh, male cult. And they, they said, if you reveal this to anyone, we'll kill you. And you know that, that's um, the, the normal part of the initiation. Um, so I, I, it's, it can be tough because anthropologists and missionaries and people who are who write about 
these societies have a limited window. They they often don't get initiated, or you know, it's it's rare um, to find someone who gets a full sort of insight into the society. Um, so it can be hard to tell how often the threats are direct, like we physically will kill you and we'll act on that. Um, but there have been, like there was the case in New Guinea too, in uh, Gregory Bateson's book, Naven, where um, some kids, some boys got too close to the men's like sacred objects and they did kill some boys for, for getting too close. So there are, I think it varies by society, um, and context and who who's encountering it or who's revealing it. But there are some real examples of killings and rape for it. And then there's there's others that may be more um, less strict or more supernatural threats. So the Mbuti, um, like you know, pygmy hunter-gatherers in the Congo have also a male cult, but the secrecy is very loose. Like, you know, there's a he mentions an example of someone losing like one of the sacred trumpets and then them kind of casually going to get it. Like it's not, it's less of a coercive um, dynamic. So it really depends, I think. Okay. So um, I want to transition here into a few of the other topics um, that are kind of related to this, but also heavily, you know, uh, influential in terms of your work and interests here. Um, first off, uh, one sort of surprise question I like to ask people, um, is, uh, just something out of the blue that I noticed about, um, their presentation. So what's the deal with the, uh, the picture that you have up on the front of your blog? Where did it come from and why is it there? Uh, it's, it's from, um, a volume on West African secret societies. Um, and it's a, a, a doctor who has, gone through the the, tr the requisite training and had the skills to practice doctoring um, within his society, which um, in many cases took, you know, years of training and practice to have that privilege and, and you know, wear that material. Um, and I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting picture and I think it sort of conveys a lot about um, the the different ways people will sort of have present themselves, I guess, with certain, like the, the mask and the costume, um, it conveys something, you know, and I, I like the aesthetic and I think it's, um, I like its association with initiation and display things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, uh, Thank you for that answer. I uh, just was curious about uh, what what was interesting about that picture. Um, I uh, I wanted to switch gears, like I said, a little bit into uh, focusing on tribalism. Um, so as an evolutionary anthropologist, you are studying a lot of what you would call tribal societies or societies that are organized around the concept of a tribe. Um, and my first question for you would be, you know, just straight up, uh, do you believe that we're we have a sort of inherent um, tendency towards tribalism? Um, I think it depends on on how you frame it, or def because I think people naturally sort of coalesce into groups in some fashion, um, and then will um, 
for for I think people are self interested though I should say in a lot of ways. Okay. So like the tribalism thing sometimes it's used as people unreflexively like defending the group or whatever. And I don't think that's really what happens a lot of the time. Like in a lot of actual tribal societies, um, group identity can be very flexible and strategic and contextual, and people can take advantage of overlapping or distinct identities or change their identity in some fashion or their loyalties, things like that. So I don't think we're unflexibly tribal in, in that sort of sense of people just kind of like mindlessly following the group. But I think people do find, you know, put themselves or find themselves in groups where they derive some benefits from that, from being in that group or the group otherwise fits their personality or in that context, there's some advantage to it. Um, and then that's when people are tribal in that, mm -hmm. in that sense. Well, I, I was just going to say, I think of it more as like a, an outgrowth of a physical reality, right? Which is that there is a bounded territory that's identified by your, your group or your tribe or your, even your nation um, as, as home territory, as own space by you. And then there's sort of things that are beyond the border of that, um, beyond the boundary. And not only the things outside of the boundary, but also the people outside of that boundary are considered to be other, right? Considered to not not be part of you. Um, I know uh, I don't I can't draw up the name specifically, but I do know that there are uh, it's it's fairly common for, for example, for some groups to for, for the word for their own group to be human being. Right. And, and the word for other groups is not that. Right. So there's almost this linguistic implication that the people who are not part of the group are then not humans. And I think this is what um, people talk about a lot when they say tribalism uh, is a sort of in-group, out-group dynamic. Um, what, do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I think, I think there's, there's layers to that, though. So, like, even within a, um, a group that may consider itself like the most important people, there are subgroups, right? Or um, other coalitions people form and will defend or protect. I mean, this is the simplest example of this is just like kinship. So like your family, right. you'll defend, you know, most people in most contexts will defend their family um, over some stranger within the broader group, even if they consider that stranger to be part of their society and in some fashion better than people outside that society. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think there's a lot of truth to what you said. Like it is common for the kind of self identity of a particular cultural group or population to identify themselves as like the real people, you know, the most important people, like the semantic association with the term for themselves it conveys something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And, but it, it really, it's tough because even like within that you can have different, you know, people belonging to different totems, you know, or, or kin, kin groups that descend from some mythical ancestor or have a special, special association with some animal or object like that's, you know, totemism. Um, so I think, 
there's definitely that kind of like coalitionary mindedness that people have, but I think it can be very flexible or um, more on a more fine grain level than Mm. just kind of broad tribalism. So the groups that you're studying here um, and that we've mostly been talking about are what you would say are sort of small scale societies. And I was just wondering what you think is the distinction in terms of your intellectual interest between these groups that we're talking about and something like ourselves, um, where there, whether that distinction is indigenous versus non-indigenous, or it has something to do with the level of um, civilizational complexity. What do you think is the the distinction there? Um, well, I mean, it's tough. Like, I think we're almost we're almost talking about these people as if we are not part of them, right? And as a anthropologist, you are sort of taking this observer type of stance, but it's sort of a weird way to frame the problem because we're all human beings. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I I think of it more just like context scale and context so like if you're living in a like if you're living in a hunter-gatherer society that doesn't make you different in some you know essential sense from someone living in an an industrial society Mm -hmm. but the environmental contexts are different the socio-ecological incentives are different like there's more the way you get your food is very different right the the day-to-day life is very different um, so, I mean, my, I'm, I'm interested in more just traditional societies, um, but it's not as a, not because I think they're as people fundamentally different. I think the environments therein have, if you're trying to understand human evolutionary history or human history more broadly, the, the, you know, living in a natural fertility, relatively, na- you know, natural fertility population where you have to, you know, forage for your own food or grow your own food um, outside of a, you know, massive economic system where you can trade, you know, you can, you're getting stuff from across the world, like the ingredients in your food or the fibers in your clothing and the materials in your computer, everything um, are just very different. So, I mean, I mean, and that's the way I tend to think about things in terms of like socio-ecological context and culture and how those incentives drive huge amounts of human behavior. And that's true whether you're in an industrial society or a small scale, you know, whatever sort of society, a lot of those local conditions matter a lot. Are you inclined to um, draw out generalities from the specific cases that you're interested in? I mean, you you talked about, um, you know, okay, if we're trying to identify, I guess, commonalities in evolutionary history or in the evolution of human beings, you would obviously want to go as close as you can to the societies or the groups of people that are living most like how humans would have lived for the longest period of time. in your work as a anthropologist, are you looking to gain insights that you can generalize more broadly into human beings, or is this more of like a fascination? 
Um, I mean, I I want to. I I don't come at it. I guess one or the other, really. Like I I like to see what I find. So like right. the, yeah, the the male cult stuff. I totally fell into it. Like I didn't go looking for that. It was just like I was reading a ton of ethnography and kept coming across these like interesting social forms that I had I had never heard about before, but it just kept popping up in, in ethnographies from around the world. And I was like, I have to understand this. Like, you know, why is this the case? Um, I do think there are there are plenty of of sort of general patterns that seem to be very common across societies, um, either universally or just common. Um as well as lots of, of differences um, and a lot of differences that I think can be explained by um, cultural or environmental vi- in var- uh, variation. Um, so like, you know, I think people everywhere experience a lot of basic emotions, right? You know, there's nowhere where people don't recognizably experience things like fear or jealousy or anger things like that. Like it just, it po- you know, in every ethnography I've read, they're all recognizably human in, in, in those terms. Um, and, you know, there's other stuff like some sex differences, but then some ones that go against, I think, popular narratives about sex differences. So like everywhere men commit more lethal violence, right? That's just something that always, anytime you read about any pattern of lethal violence, um, or you know, extreme aggression and coercion, it's more likely to be males in every sort of society. Um, other stuff though, like there's a popular evolutionary psychology um, idea that you know, women evolve to pre- prefer men with resources and men evolve to care more about looks and, and things like that. And I don't, I wouldn't go as far as to say there's nothing to that, but there's also a lot of societies where the women procure most of the food and the men specifically in terms of marriage arrangements go for women who are good foragers or good, um, good at brewing the local beer or, you know, good at gardening, things like that. So um, I think, and that's the importance of, of, you know, ecology and environment right there. Um, Mm. So I, so I really, I don't want to be like, I'm looking for universals or I'm looking for exceptions because then you kind of like. You box your, yourself into that. Yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, mm-hmm. that's dangerous. You know, there's a lot of pitfalls to that. Um, but if I find something, I'll, I'll write about it or talk about it um, in either direction. You know? So your blog is called Traditions of Conflict um, and you're interested in violence. You're interested in traditional societies. I think. Uh, in terms of the Western mind, there tends to be this split between a sort of uh, Hobbesian view of human nature and a more like Rousseauian view, um, whether, you know, basically whether or not you believe that society has a, uh, a dampening effect on human violence or whether or not it actually, you know, uh, contributes to it. Uh, I think you can make arguments in either direction. Um, but that sort of tends to be at least in the political world, uh, where people tend to split is along those two um, intellectual lineages for understanding uh, human beings, you know, whether or not you're more inclined to focus on the cooperative aspects or whether or not you are more interested in how we tend to go go up against one another. Um, Why are you interested in violence specifically 
And w- how do you how do you see the interplay between those two dialectics? Um, so I, I, I totally agree with you that people often kind of split into those camps. Um, and I think, you know, even if, if both of those guys may have had some insights, like neither of those sort of broad groupings, is particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, like well, I, and they I, weren't, they weren't really anthropologists either. Right. Right. Well, and, and also they both thought along with other people around that time that life and, you know, the state of nature was like solitary. Like they both mm-hmm. said, you know, so that was Very obviously static. Yeah. So that was, you know, th- I think it's good to move beyond those um, generalizations. Um, but as for why I'm interested in violence, I'm not, I- I'm not entirely sure, you know, like I, I just, I think it's been an important part of human history in a lot of ways. And I don't think it's always been explored as, in a way that's particularly edifying, you know, like I, I, I want to understand why, like it, it's been an important part of history and I want to understand why it has been. Um, and some of the patterns I came across in ethnography were just interesting to me in terms of not really being exposed to um, these cultural practices and norms and things like that, practices of headhunting, um, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's I, I just find it interesting, and I think it's it's worth um, trying to understand. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, it wasn't trying to get you to, like, psychoanalyze yourself or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but uh, one of the questions that I've been pondering um, since we've been talking about it and is in my notes here is this uh, this aspect of scale, right? So one of the key differences between living in you know, what you would say is an industrial society versus a more traditional society is that the um, the tools that are available through technology um, that uh, increase the capacity for violence to such an extent that you start getting, you know, around the turn of the 20th century um, notions of mutually assured destruction and the fact that we're, we're reaching a point where the tools that we have available for violence are so strong, they amplify the effects so 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 much that we can't even really use them. Um, how do you see that dynamic of increasing technical capacity for violence changing the nature of human conflict? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess I, violence is always, not always, but it's often associated with particular incentives. So like, you know, just going back to hunter-gatherers, then I'll get back to to larger scale. But like, there's a common idea that hunter-gatherers like don't wage war. There's a belief in in many sectors that they don't. um, And that's not correct. Um, And it's been in part driven by a focus on the hunter-gatherer societies that neighbor like powerful agro-pastoralist societies. So naturally, if you're a relatively small population using traditional tools or, you know, closer to traditional tools, it's not in your interest to wage war against a much larger society um, that may have more powerful tools um, and may have heavier investment into infrastructure and things like that. Like it's going to be in your interest in many of those contexts to move away, right? If you're already mobile as well. But if you're a hunter-gatherer society, neighboring another hunter-gatherer society, 
and there may be some competition for desirable hunting grounds or gathering patches or fishing, you know, fishing locations, things like that, you can see warfare, you know? Um, so like this, is, and this kind of goes back to the whole Hobbes Rousseau thing. Like it's, people are not inherently peaceful or violent in either mm. case. It's, it's based often on incentives and the, the context. So with something like the, you know, nuclear weapons, like I think the last, the decades since uh, populations have had nuclear weapons has been somewhat of a vindication of people responding to incentives. The fact that there hasn't been a nuclear war, you know, it's not, it's not in people's interests to engage in something like that. Although, you know, I mean, you still have proxy wars and stuff like that and have for a long time. So there's, um, I, I think people are often pretty smart about conflict in, in a lot of ways. Like you see this very common with, with small scale societies where like attackers usually succeed or they don't catastrophically fail at least, you know what I mean? Like, right. so like when if you people, go, if you go for the King, make sure you kill him. Yeah. Right? And this is, this is true in, in coup attempts too, in, in, um, state societies where there's a pretty high rate of success of like when generals wage a coup, there's, they're often successful, you know, not always, but often people have a pretty good idea about when to strike, you know? Um, and obviously again, not, you know, I'm not saying that's always the case, but it's pretty common tendency. Um, so I think, I think the incentives matter a lot in, in whether that's a small, whether you're in a small scale society, large scale society, interpersonal conflict, coalitionary violence, whatever the scale incentives um, matter a lot. Okay. So, uh, I like your focus on incentives and I like also the fact that it's not, um, purely economic when you hear people talking about incentives, often what they're talking about is just economic incentives. Um, but I wanted to go into something that can sort of distort incentives or even change the incentives themselves, which is human belief systems. Um, so, you know, belief systems arguably are a type of uh, technology, right? You've got these mimetic complexes that pop up and they serve various kinds of interests. Some people even believe that they're wholly self-perpetuating and that's they, they're sort of serving their own interest. Um, but... Belief systems do alter the incentives and they cause people to do things that would normally be even outrageous or ridiculous to what you would normally consider, um, you know, general human self-interest, things like, you know, whatever, you know, causing people to join cults, for example, or, um, or even more extreme examples like suicide bombings um, are clearly not in that individual's interest, but are a result of sort of the belief system uh that they belong, that they've adopted. Um, so <clears throat> how, how do I want to start with this? How do you see belief systems, uh, manifested in these smaller scale societies, more traditional societies, uh, in terms of operating? And then I want to later, and maybe you can handle it all at once or we can, move to it later but i also wanted to touch really quickly on the concept of ideologies and how those might be uh, separate belief systems from what you would consider religion 
um, or more mystical types of uh, types of belief that people have. Um, so let, let's just start with the small scale societies. How do you think belief systems there influence the incentives um, for action and, you know, generally organizing things and what 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 role do they have? Uh, I, th I mean, they're extremely important for sure. Um, so like there's practices associated with headhunting, for example, um, that have occurred in various parts of the world. Um, and sometimes this is associated with beliefs about, you know, ex collecting the heads of enemies is essential for the fertility of crops. You know, it's essential for the health of the community. Um, and even there's cases where it's, you know, not even headhunting, but just retaining the heads of ancestors um, and consulting with them and keeping them in a honored place in the house um, that they provide guidance and things like that. And sometimes it's interesting because sometimes um, the keeping of the head can be a burden as well. Like they have to be fed, they have to be interacted with enough and they're believed to cause misfortune too, in, in some contexts. So there's a, there can be whole packages of beliefs that the, that drive a lot of behavior that may even be costly, right? Like, like sort of wasting food to mm -hmm. put it on an offering for the head. Um, like there's, there's so many examples, um, often associated with what we call religion, right? Or, or spiritual practices, like in a lot of hunting societies, there's rituals associated with hunting. And like, so in, in, um, some Inuit populations, they'd like leave desirable parts of the caribou out as a sacrifice after killing one because it was believed that this offering means that the caribou will keep coming in the future you know so a lot of i mean particularly when it comes to funerary rites there's a lot of costly like rituals associated with it people doing self-mutilation um as a display of like grieving and stuff yeah um, crying over staying with the body for multiple days Oh yeah. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes, so in New Guinea, um, there's a society the Gabusi where, um, after someone dies, like the women would rub the like decaying fluids over their body and, and, you know, wail is a sign of grieving. Um, so people can, I think everywhere, um, cultural beliefs are extremely important in, in driving behavior even in ways that don't clearly have a um, local incentive to it beyond the culture itself, you know? So, mm -hmm. so maybe you gain status within that system for, for head hunting or the like, you know, and, and some of the stuff you can rationalize it in terms of like defending the community or something. Um, but in other cases, like, so another New Guinea society, um, in, in quite a few New Guinea societies, there have been beliefs about like, like, sexual beliefs so like in this one society um on the like wedding night the woman would like be gang raped by all the male's relatives or like mm -hmm. ten, a bunch of the male's relatives under the belief that this or the cultural logic that this would increase her fertility but in fact it caused harmful like stds and, and trauma 
and it actually had the opposite effect. But this society was also well known for raiding other communities and abducting children to bring into their group. So even though their own fertility was hurt by this practice, um, the, they were having constant influx of children because of their raiding activities. So the culture could perpetuate itself, even if individual fitness interests could be hurt by this cultural practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, those are almost like complementing beliefs sort of in terms yeah. of like compensating. Yeah. And I mean, they had a male cult, you know, associated with this too. And, you know, the like young boys would be like, ra- you know, raped in this cult as well. Um, so, so I, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I just, we've, you've brought it up a few times here. Um, I think sexual violence is one of those things that we don't tend to think about when we talk about violence or conflict. And obviously there are like lots of different theories about why sexual violence gets committed. Um, and whether it's for, you know, purely for pleasurable reasons, or if there's a more of a power dynamic type thing going on. Um, I just wanted to point out that, like, this is clearly a case where, um, due to these belief systems, you know, that sexual violence is is committed for no other reason other than, you know, whatever superstitious belief they happen to have about, um, you know, the reason for doing it. Absolutely. Um, that in this case, I'm referring to that's very true. And actually, many of the men told the the anthropologists who wrote about this that, like, they didn't like it. You know, like they, they, like some of them couldn't get hard when doing it and would have to like masturbate before things like that. Like it, there's definitely practices like that, that are not done for either power or pleasure, as you said, just a a cultural logic to it. Now there are other cases that fit the other two examples of power or pleasure, but there's, you know, that's, it's not just those things. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I I think I interrupted you. Um, You were talking about the way in which these belief systems operate in these societies. Um, just for some context, I'm about halfway through uh, Sir James Fraser, Fraser's uh, The Golden Bough right now, which I've been procrastinating on finishing because it's just so long <laughs> and I had to go read something else. Um, but uh, that book is sort of all about kind of the, at least, you know, when he wrote it at the time, it was about the exploring kind of the origins of, of religion and religious rituals and kind of how it came out of superstitious beliefs or, you know, early iterations of what you would call magic, where there's sort of a, um, a totem or an item or something that's believed to be possessed some kind of power. And even though the action that you're taking with regard to it is not directly tied to some causal event in, in the, in the universe that we can point to, it's believed to have a causal effect. Right. And, um, the core of it, I, if I remember correctly, I actually haven't picked it up in a little while, so I need to finish it, uh, is that, you know, these beliefs, um, they evolve over time and eventually we do sort of discover the causal reason for things happening. We do figure out that, oh, it rains when the clouds have sufficient precipitation in them, not, not because we did a rain dance or whatever. Um, although to be fair, we can't know for sure. I don't know if anyone has the causality for rain nailed down entirely yet. Uh, but um, the point being that when we move from um, superstitious beliefs to straight up causality, then that just becomes what we call science, right? 
Um, so how, how do you see religion uh, and religious ideas evolving over time? Um, yeah, that's tough. I mean, so Frazier's account. Um, oh, yeah. Also, tell me what you think of Frazier, because I'd like to know. So, I mean, I one of my favorite books is, is Totemism and Exogamy, which is by Frazier. And it's an exhaustive account of, of like totemistic practices and their association with marriage norms across a huge array of societies. Um, the quality of the sources are not always great. Like a lot of them are very early or brief reports from missionaries um, or colonial authorities, and they're not always the best accuracy. Um, the sheer volume is useful and they're from diverse sources. So you still get some good stuff and some patterns. Um, but his explanation, like, I, I think there's some truth to it, but I think it's probably overstated. You know what I mean? Like the, you're not like for just to bring it closer to home, like the liturgy, like Catholic practices, like if, a, if an anthropologist unfamiliar with the practice was writing about it, would they be confused and think like they really believe, you know, like you, it's symbolic, right? A lot of, a lot of practices like that are symbolic. They're not necessarily confused causality. It's not that people mm -hmm. don't understand what they're doing. It, it's mm -hmm. just, it's associated with like other symbols, you know, like it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's hard to pin down for sure. Um, but I'd be wary of boiling it down too much to just people not knowing the way the world works. Like there's some of that for sure. Like that's not uh, an irrelevant aspect broadly, but I think, you know, when, uh, when they throw out the, you know, when Inuit hunter throws out the caribou liver, um, mm. to appease the spirits of the caribou and to guarantee that, more caribou will be coming next hunting time or sing songs in their honor to appease their spirits. Like it's, it's, I don't think it, it like they know when they're hunting, they know what it takes to hunt successfully, right? They have to, sh they have to stalk them for hours. They will stay, you know, carefully isolated or hide behind trees. They'll wear camouflage, things like that. It's like, there's actually a good account of this, of um, a Kung rain, like a rain dance, where they, where, uh, I can't remember where it's, the source is from, but it's from an anthropologist describing a, a, like a dance to initiate rain, and then it doesn't rain, and then the guy shrugs and stops. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was, it's just like, it, it it's not like... I don't know. There's there's a lot of symbolism to practices that don't necessarily have to be people confused or bad, right. so, you know, sloppy science or something. So like that. we can't know exactly what's in their head, right, when they're performing these these rituals. Um, but if we if we take it as a given that they're not, you know, necessarily thinking literally that it's going to give them what they want. Yes. Um, then. That points to me to some sort of human tendency for like needing to find meaning, right, in the in the thing that they're doing, and they're sort of creating the meaning. You're calling it a symbol, right? So when I leave the liver out, and I'm hoping that that brings more elk herds in the future, 
Um, I don't know if that was the right right story that I'm drawing that from, but anyway, people get it. Uh, then uh, there's something about like just being able to take some kind of action, right? To hope to hope that something will happen that sort of fulfills me, even if I know that hey, like it's it's not necessarily going to give me what I want. Um, uh, and I I'm just curious if if there's any uh, actions that people do these days where we know that it's not necessarily going to lead to the outcome that we want, but we still sort of go through the motion because it sort of is, um, I guess, reassuring um, to feel like we have some control. Do you think it comes from that? I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Absolutely. I mean, I like, I mean, everyone was a kid, you know, there's the rhyme, like step on a crack, break your mother's back. There's stuff about like the number 13 or cracked mirror. Like there's plenty of superstitions where like, even if you know, you know, it's, it's not real. You know it. I would avoid cracks and lines in the ground walking just as a kid, you know, like I, I think, you know, people, people who are not religious will pray, you know, sometimes, um, I think there's a lot of things people do that are broad human tendencies that I don't know. There, there are quirks like this is, this is where I agree with evolutionary psychology, actually, even though I, I disagree um, on some aspects, but there's, you look at the things people do cross-culturally and there's, there's a lot of just quirks in how people behave like, and in, in cultural norms that reliably pop up, um, like bloodletting is a very common practice cross-culturally. Um, and it's not always super costly. Uh, they, they may let out a little blood or a lot of blood. It depends. Um, but it, for whatever reason, it seems like an intuitive equilibrium people come to that. Like if you're sick, getting out the bad blood just makes sense, you know? Well, I and mean, they are, they are sort of right that, um, I mean, not, not in all cases, but like in general, there is some sort of, you know, physical or chemical imbalance, if you want to call it that, in your body that's causing the illness, right? Mm. So it's not totally removed. Anyway, I don't know what the what the point of bringing that that up. Is, but <clears throat> well, I there's could also, see how it would fit together. Yeah, I mean, and I've been looking at tattooing, um, and one of the most common contexts where where tattooing and scarification occurs in hunter gatherer societies is like to alleviate pain or cure some disease. Um, you know, I don't know, like that it's, it is tough to, to pin down why people do a lot of the things they do absent clear incentives. And that, that's the one thing I like about that's the behavioral ecology logic and also people following cultural norms is that you kind of have a clear pathway versus a lot of, a lot of what people do is kind of like random in some fashion. It's not always easy to to, to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, or I mean, even like just to bring up like a contemporary example right now, like you've got people who obsess over, uh, over the news, right. And I'm not talking about political news. I'm talking about specifically like, um, like just with this coronavirus, like people that are constantly looking to get the next epidemic update, right. On like the number of cases and What's the latest on, you know, the studies that we got and how's the vaccine progress going? And like um, if you're diverting a lot of your attention and a lot of your time to that and you're maybe checking almost like daily or multiple times throughout the day 
to see like updates on Twitter or on on the news or whatever about the epidemiology, like uh, you're not actually necessarily like equipping yourself to be better informed about anything. And most of the time, the updates that you're getting are not going to be relevant and they're not things that you can take action on. And for most people, they don't exist in a professional context where they would even be able to take uh, where they would be even contributing to that or 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 in, in, any kind of like new information that comes out on a day to day basis would likely be implementable in any real way in their life. Um, so that to me, like strikes me as like almost a quasi um, a, a, a quasi superstitious thing, right? Where it's like they want to feel like they have control over this really like highly uncontrollable situation. And by doing this thing over and over again, almost compulsively, they're sort of giving themselves a kind of reassurance even though yeah. it doesn't have an effect. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think I think that's a, a good way of viewing it in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it is interesting to think about how much of the, the little things people do like that are, I mean, this is getting like psychoanalysis level, but to <laughs> fulfill some sort of emotional need or, or you know, broader feeling, um, I think there is a lot of that. You know? Yeah, or just like an outlet for for anxiety or something. Yeah, like that. Um, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Okay. Um. So a few a few last things I wanted to ask you about. Um. So your primary work, outside of all the articles that you write, and you do actually write quite a lot. So, um. I just want to say thank you for being a prolific contributor to a number of uh, uh of online platforms because not a, a very small minority of people write the vast majority of the articles that are written. So. Uh, and I would consider you among among one of those people. You're pretty prolific. Um, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about your day-to-day -day work in the Human Systems and Behavior Lab at Penn State, um, because I'm assuming you're not spending most of your time, I and mean, maybe you do take periods to go out into the field, but I'm assuming you're not spending most of your time, you know, um, doing ethnographies and so forth uh, in distant places. Uh, what, do you, what do you do in a, a general sense on a day-to-day -day basis in the lab? Um, so... The most re well, the most recent thing I've been working on um, is a project on punishment across cultures. So, a lot of what I've I I do, and this is both for the lab and for my own uh, research that I'm doing, is use this database, um, the Human Relations Area Files, um, and it has accounts of it has ethnographic documents from about 350 or so societies. Um, so I just dig through that and like the, the punishment project we've been working on, it looks at the different contexts of punishment across these societies and also a particular focus on, uh, punishments for war cowardice. Um, so that's the, the main project I'm working on with the lab. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's mainly just digging through, um, this resource, the human relations area files and looking for particular domains, domains of interest to me or for the lab, um, or just, I'm just randomly curious about, so I'll do a search. So this is like a large uh, database uh, or compendium. What is it, what's, what's it mostly consisting of? Um, so it's, it, it's, it's nice because it has a, a layout where you can see each society in the database. Um, as well as there's a tab for all the collection documents 
and a tab for the authors that have written about each society. And so for each society, you'll have often, you know, a dozen or two uh, more or less um, ethnographic documents. And some are like books, others are brief reports, um, and they span from like, you know, in some cases, the like 1700s or even 1600s of the earliest accounts to more modern day. And there's some quality control for like, you know, is this a good source? Um, you know, how reliable is this supposed to be? And it's nice because you have, um, for the same society, you'll have multiple documents from different authors. So you can check for, for consistency um, or changes over time, things like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just basically a, a page. It's a, it's a website with a, a huge collection of documents that you can read through. And it also has for each document, for each paragraph, there'll be categories and how they, um, they, well, they categorize different things like, you know, funerary rites, warfare. Um, and then there's subcategories for those, like, you know, in, under warfare, there's like tactics and like uniforms and peace deals and things like that. Um, so this is a great database. Um, and I get lost in it all the time. I mean, I've been, I browse it obsessively for the last like two years and I, I've learned a ton and I still find out a lot of new stuff in there. Yeah. So are you doing, um, are you doing like data analysis on, on that information or is a lot of it just sort of soaking up or, um, or finding, um, similar, I guess, um, uh, I don't want to call them allegories, but, uh, narratives. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it depends on the project, but most of what I do is like looking in a particular domain. Mm -hmm. Um, so punishment and then coding it based on like aspects of interest. So punishment for like adultery, punishment for cowardice and then types of punishment, you know, um, like, so under, under the cowardice part of the punishment project, we'll have like physical sanctions where like physically attacking someone for war cowardice, uh, material sanctions. So like they'll have to repay economically reputational sanctions, um, things like, like social that pressure. And yes, exactly. So, so it's, yeah, mainly, um, and the way I do it personally for my own stuff, like I have a paper under review on disguises in hunter gatherer societies. Um, and so I looked, um, in this sample of hunter gatherer societies, different types of disguises. So disguises under religious or cult practices, disguises under war or interpersonal violence and hunting disguises. And then I further categorize them based on, um, like whether they fit certain types of camouflage or mimicry based on the animal literature. Um, so it's mainly a lot of like cataloging and categorizing, um, mm -hmm. particular, um, variables and domains of interest. Well, that's, that's really, really cool. Um, yeah, well, uh, thank you so much, Will, for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it's getting a little late for me here in, uh, in the Eastern time zone. Um, so I'm, I'm running out of steam, but, um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, one last thing before I let you go, I just wanted to ask if there's anything that you wanted to share with the listeners um, that you feel would be an important thing to keep in mind or an insight um, from the field of evolutionary anthropology. And in particular, I mean, you can make it about your work specifically if you'd like. Take that however you want. Um, so, I mean, the main thing I'd say is that 
there's a lot of focus on evolutionary psychology as being sort of the sole evolutionary approach to human behavior. And I, um, and I think it's important just to know that there are multiple evolutionary approaches to understanding human behavior. There's the framework of behavioral ecology, there's cultural evolution, and there's evolutionary psychology as the big three. Um, and there's a lot of overlap, but differences too. And so there's different ways um, to understand the evolution of human behavior. And I just think it's important to be careful um, thinking in that way, like evolution is a powerful tool, but it's also easy to get kind of reductionist about it or boil it down to like one easy answer, like uh, you evolved to do X or you evolved to do Y. Um, and it's worth, I think, just thinking about the different ways of thinking about socioecology and the environment, cultural pressures, as well as evolved instincts or cognitive mechanisms. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's the main thing, just thinking about the multiple evolutionary approaches and the, the different ways you can understand human behavior. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Will. Um, I've had uh, one evolutionary psychologist and two evolutionary anthropologists on, so the anthropologists are ahead right now. Um, <laughs> nice. Anyway, uh, you can uh, read more of Will's work at traditionsofconflict.com or find him on Twitter at evolving underscore Moloch. And uh, with that, thank you so much for joining us and have a great night, everyone.